The scripture reading this afternoon is Colossians chapter 1, starting with verse 24 through chapter 2, verse 5. It is on page 10 in your bulletin and also projected above behind me. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. The word of the Lord. Get into the passage for today. Um, my name is Andy Wood. I'm the soon-to-be associate pastor here officially June 1st. Um, really looking forward to being on staff here. Um, it's been a long transition, and uh, we are ready. Uh, some of you, many of you have been praying for uh, my work with RUF, and I'm really thankful uh, for that. Uh, we did, uh, I guess on Thursday, um, the guy who's going to take my job accepted the position, and uh, he's great. His name is Colin Peters. He's been the senior pastor at New St. Peter's in Dallas, and um, he was the RUF campus minister at Mercer 20 years ago, and um, loves RUF and uh, is a great pastor and uh, doesn't have to move, uh, can, can live in Dallas and do the job. He's been the committee chair for our presbytery, overseeing nine of our RUF ministries in our presbytery, and he is, uh, he's just a great choice. And uh, so I'm really thankful. That's kind of the last piece of the puzzle. He and I actually are meeting this week to start the transition there so that I can more freely be here uh, when Brian starts his sabbatical and I start officially June 1st. So um, would ask for your patience with me as I um, post-COVID still, I feel like there are a ton of people I'm getting to know um, and uh, as we start to get our heads around, you know, whether it's community groups or mercy and outreach or men's ministry, uh, would love if you have particular thoughts, things that you think you'd like to see or experiences you've had, I would love to hear that stuff. So um, if you want to reach out to me or c catch me after the service or something, would love to start talking some Trinity ministry stuff. And so as you get a, um, as you feel, uh, have some ideas or something like that, I would love to have those 
those conversations. Um, that would be really great. I'm really excited about this summer together and then our ministry as we transition into the new building and this new stage of, of the life in, of Trinity. So um, again, I'm really excited. Thanks for your prayers for all of that. Uh, also do want to give a, just a big thanks to Robert Ryan and uh, the rest of the guys that helped with the men's retreat. It was, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it was a great experience being together. Uh, a lot of fun and um, really excited and thankful for all the work they put in to make that happen. If you would, if you've already got Colossians out, if you can um, open to that again or find it in your bulletin, that would be great. Um, kids, we are, let me give you a couple things to listen for. The first one is a secret, something about a secret. The second one, filling up, so Colossians 1, 24, talks about filling up, and we're going to try to figure out what that means. And then the third one is a story, it's a little bit weird, it's about bone marrow, okay? So uh, just be on the lookout for those, if you would. Uh, grown-ups, if you need um, some, some points to, to hang your hats on as well, uh, mystery and maturity, that's where we're going for that as well. Um, how many of you kids... Uh, know what it feels like to know a secret. It's pretty awesome, right? To know a secret. Like to know that you, maybe you know something that your brothers don't know, right? Isn't that awesome? There's maybe nothing better in the world, right, than knowing a secret. <clears throat> now, imagine what it feels like, maybe you've experienced this, to not know a secret, but to know that there is one, right? Maybe you feel that, and you felt that before, and you know the, the, the frustration of what it's like. Um, speaking of the secret, may, maybe some of you grown-ups will remember the book, I think it came out like 15, maybe 20 years ago even now, called The Secret. Do you remember this thing? There was this big dust-up over The Secret. I think it came out in 2006, if I remember correctly. And it basically said, it, it sort of explained this, what they called the law of attraction. That if you thought the right things, the positive things, that you, and you thought them hard enough and in the right way, you could make them happen in the world. That'd be pretty awesome, right? You could feel why it was a bestseller. You can get why it was pretty attractive. But you had to do it in the right way. You had to think, and so this book taught you how, 200 pages or whatever, to teach you how to, to sort of put your thoughts out there and for them to be actualized into the world. That, that's a little bit what's happening in the church in Colossae in this moment, right? We don't know everything. Actually, scholars have wrestled for thousands of years trying to figure out what the thing was in Colossians, in, in Colossae that was, um, that was a distraction that sort of forced Paul to write. But there was something in Colossae. Epaphras had heard the gospel and come to Colossae and started a church there. And that church was young, new in its faith, and there were people coming to it saying, there's this thing you've got to have. There's this secret, and if you know it, you're, you're, you're fully saved, or you're, you're really experiencing the Christian life. And without it, you're deficient. And it's this really exclusive thing, right? You either have it or you don't, and the haves, they're thriving, and the have-nots are, are, are left behind. And Paul writes 
to the church in Colossae to say, Christ, the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God, the one who created everything that is, heaven and earth, is all that you need. There's a throne in heaven and Jesus is on it. There's a universe and he rules the whole thing. Jesus is sovereign and he is all that you need. The secret that Paul is revealing to the Colossians isn't exclusive, it's inclusive. And so that's what we're gonna talk about as we get into this today. Let me pray for us and then we'll dig in. Lord God, you are kind in all that you do. Thank you for your word that it is truth and life to us. Would you meet us by your spirit, work in our hearts to make Jesus more beautiful and believable to us, that our hope, that our confidence, our willingness to suffer, our firmness in the faith would grow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. This mystery that Paul refers to in our passage is one that has echoes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, the beginning of creation. As we start this afternoon, I just want to give you a quick biblical theology of God's presence with his people. I think it's helpful for us to remember that what Paul is doing here is saying this, this seed of, of the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, has been around from the beginning but it's been in seed form. And now, finally, it's not hidden anymore. It's completely realized, and it's inclusive. It's open to anyone who would trust in Jesus. If you remember back to creation, God creates Adam and Eve. And he creates the garden that they're to live in, and he walks with them. The Bible says that they would spend time together walking through the garden, right? Their presence of God was immediate with his people, with Adam and Eve. And then we find out in Genesis 3 that Adam and Eve, they choose their own autonomy instead of that closeness, the intimacy, the presence of God with them. They choose that autonomy, and what happens in Genesis 3 is that they are kicked out of the garden, they are excluded from God's presence. That, that immediacy is gone. The presence of God with his people is broken. But there's a hope. Even in Genesis 3.15, this first gospel that comes where God says to the serpent, cursed are you, cursed is the ground because of you, the seed of the woman will come. And she will bruise, he will bruise your head. There's a promise even there. Then in Genesis 12, our Old Testament reading for today, God sets up this special relationship with his people, not because they were better than anyone else or bigger or stronger, anything, but he, he set his love on the nation of Israel through Abraham. And he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless you. This special relationship will be a blessing to you, and through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Fast forward, and God gives the Israelites the tabernacle, the place where God would dwell with his people, 
temporarily, of course, but the presence came down on the tabernacle and God dwelt with his people, the nation of Israel, as they wander. Um, Then we get to the sacrificial system, right, where God sets up this system where he can be with his people through the sacrifice of these animals. The sacrificial system mediates God's presence with his people. The Israelites build the temple and his presence, God's presence comes down and he dwells with his people. Fast forward again to a manger when the baby Jesus is born. Emmanuel, God with us, God in human flesh. He dwells with us and we see what God is like because of Jesus in his humanity. But that's not it. He lives the life that we couldn't. He dies in our place. He's raised to new life for us. He ascends to heaven and sends his spirit to tabernacle with his people. But where does that happen? In us. In us. Our bodies, Paul Paul says, are temples of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. Not around us, not near us, in us. God dwells in us. And Paul says in this passage that this is a mystery that was hidden, but is no longer hidden. It is now revealed to them, verse 27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Jesus has dwelt and shown us what God is like. He has sent his spirit to dwell in us, our bodies, our temples of the Holy Spirit. But it's, it's not just for the Jews. It's for all tribes and tongues and nations, anyone who would come to Christ. The Gentiles, most of us, I assume, right? we can sit here and worship, put our faith and trust in Jesus as Gentiles because of this work of the Spirit that gave the same gospel that was given to the Jews, given to the Gentiles. It's available to all of us, this mystery that's made known. What's the point? What's Paul trying to do here? He is in the way... Um, I think one way to think about it, you probably heard this illustration before about uh, counterfeit uh, money. I just finished a, a Lee Child's uh, novel about counterfeit money, uh, and it was all about all of these different things, uh, ways to, to make counterfeit money, and the bad guys get caught in the end, and all that kind of stuff. But they're talking about um, one of the ways that you can distinguish, right, is to, you could try to figure out the thousands of different ways that forgers are going to mess with the actual dollar bill and make counterfeit money. But they train Uh, agents, treasury department folks, and all of that, to actually know the real thing so well that whatever new technology, whatever thing comes down the pike, they can spot it, right? They don't have to know all of the errors. They just know the real thing so well that they can spot the error, right? And that's what Paul is doing here. Paul isn't coming with all of these arguments against the secret, these mystery religions that would say you need Jesus, but you also need this special thing in order to be authentic, to be real. What you really need 
is just Jesus. And you need to know him. You need to know that he is the image of the invisible God, verse 15. All things were created by him, verse 16. He's before him, before all things, and in him all things hold together, verse 17. He's the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Verse 18, verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This Jesus the one who is all of those things for us. He is the one that we're to put our faith in. And Paul says you need to lean into him and you need to grow in maturity. You need to grow in maturity so that you can stand, we'll talk about that in a minute, and also suffer. Look at verse 24. Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, as we think about this, it may, it may not feel very fun to hear that what, what Paul really wants for the Colossians and, and what Jesus really wants for you is to grow in maturity through suffering. And yet, that is exactly, exactly what's happening in this passage. Uh, Pastor Robert Rayburn, um, there's a quote in your words for reflections that I really appreciate. And there's, there's a longer one I'm gonna, uh, I want to read to you that I think is really helpful. He says this, you're not going to get maturity in any other way than by the discipline of your heavenly father. Just like your children will not get to maturity without your disciplining of them when they misbehave. What your pain and sorrow contribute to is your maturity in Christ. You are the proof of the gospel. You are the presence of Christ in the world. When you bear your sufferings with Christian grace and joy, when you honor God in the midst of them, blessing the one who has given and taken away, you are bringing in the kingdom of God in one of the most powerful ways in which it can be brought in. The world does not need anything so much as it needs mature Christians proving the gospel to it with the grace of their lives. And when they are afflicted and remain Christ-like, they are more visibly the presence of Christ in this world who bore many afflictions, every sort of affliction, with grace, with patience, and with a view to higher and eternal things. The world needs this, and the church needs this to become more and more her true self. See, what's happening here is not that Jesus' sufferings on behalf of his people were somehow deficient. Right? That is not at all what Paul says. And actually, he goes to great lengths in other, other letters in the New Testament to say that Christ's, his, his sufferings on the cross for us were completely sufficient. They actually accomplished salvation for the people that God has called to himself. So what does he say, what does Paul mean when he says that he is filling up in his body what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ? A lot of commentators, and I agree with them, uh, I don't know that that means a whole lot, but I agree uh, with them, uh, think that this means that the life of the Christian is a cruciform life. 
And as Christ lived and suffered, so his people live that same way. And as we do that, we make present or visible to the people that see us, we make the sufferings of Christ visible in that way to them. What does it mean to deny yourself, to sacrifice for others? Well, we get a picture of that in how we live our lives in community with one another as we suffer for the sake of the gospel. Uh, there is a, 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 sometimes with leukemia, uh, maybe you've heard this, maybe hopefully, God forbid, maybe you've experienced um, a, someone, a family member, or something that has leukemia. I was reading a story about a family where the daughter, young daughter, had uh, acute leukemia. And the uh, cure for that, the treatment for that, was a bone marrow transplant. And so they tested family and you know, anyone who was able uh, was tested to, to see if they could potentially do this bone marrow, be a donor uh, for a bone marrow transplant. And the, the mom, turns out the mom was a match to be able to donate her bone marrow to her daughter. And uh, I don't know a ton about that, um, but I've read enough in studying for this that that bone marrow harvesting process is excruciatingly difficult, painful, challenging and the story was talking about the in a weird way the the joy of the mother to to suffer on behalf of her daughter to bring life to her and and it's it's that it's that sense of what's happening here that our sufferings for the sake of Christ <laughs> And our rejoicing in those sufferings, as paradoxical and contrary as that may seem, brings life. It is a picture of the gospel, the upside-down values and priorities of the Christian life. And as that mom suffers joyfully to give of herself for her daughter to bring life, that is what's happening here. Paul is filling up what is lacking, and that's the call for us, the call to maturity, is this call to giving up of ourselves. It's a call to sacrifice. It's a call to lay our lives down for our friends as Jesus laid down his life for us. N.T. Wright uh, says this, I love this quote, but all Christians will suffer for their faith in one way or another. If not outwardly, then inwardly, through the long, slow battle with temptation or sickness, the agonizing anxieties of Christian responsibilities for a family or a church, the constant doubts and uncertainty which accompany the obedience of faith, and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to, taken up as they are within the call to follow Christ. All of these, properly understood, are things to rejoice in, not casually, flippantly, or superficially, but because they are the signs that the present age is passing away, that the people of Jesus, the Messiah, are the children of the new age, and that the birth pangs of this new age are being worked out in them. As we suffer, 
imitating the life of our cruciform Savior, we are moving towards glory. We are growing in our Christ-likeness, and it is a mark of maturity. It can be really difficult, says the pastor, for me to not be selfish. It can be hard for us in our community for us not to be selfish, to put ourselves out there over and over and over again without this sense of return. But it is leaning into, it is trusting in all that Christ is for us and has accomplished for us. He has reconciled us to himself. We have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We have everything that we need from Christ so that we can then pour ourselves out for others, for his sake. That's a picture of our life together. We consider others better than ourselves. We sacrifice our time, our resources, our talents. We open up ourselves to vulnerability. We admit our weakness. We do all of those things, moving towards others in welcome, in, in community. We, we invite others into that lifestyle. Paul says maturity also, in addition to rejoicing in our suffering, looks like firmness in our faith. That's from verse two, chapter 2, verse 5. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now this firmness works in a couple different ways. Let me see if I can um, explain it. I, Tim Keller uh, talks about it this way. He says uh, this is soulfulness not soullessness, right? There is a way, he says, of doing the Christian life that's just external, where you're sort of going through the motions, but there's no heart in it. And, and he says that soulfulness actually has our hearts engaged in what we're doing, in all of life, in the beauties and in the suffering. There's this soulfulness. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 2. That your hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our hearts are full by the good news of the gospel, and they're marked by joy. The beauty of all that Christ has done for us enraptures us and it compels us to move forward towards others. A mature heart has unity. Even, even in our differences, we see that our bonds in Christ are more important than whatever may divide us. Right, whether it's political, whether it's socioeconomic, whether it's ethnic, whatever those divisions may be, but that our union in Christ and our unity with one another trumps all of those things. And so we can work side by side, hand in hand, whatever that might look like. We can move together in unity, in a firmness of faith. We have assurance. Verse 2. 
the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. We know Christ. We just don't know about him, but we know him. And we trust him. We fully lean on him. Put all of our weight into all that he is for us. And that actually frees us up to love and serve one another. When I'm acting out of my own needs, instead of resting in the gospel, uh, it might, I'm a people pleaser, and so it might look like um, doing whatever I need to to be liked. Um, and that's what, there, there's some stuff that's okay about that. But at a gospel level, it actually shows an immaturity in me. If I have to um, be honest and say, what would maturity actually look like? There would be an, an assurance, a firmness, a confidence that Christ is my righteousness that actually frees me up to love and serve others. Instead of needing acceptance from them, instead of needing something, you know, uh, getting my worth and value from them, my worth and value would be established because of who Christ is for me. And I'd be freed up to move towards others. Uh, maybe, maybe you struggle, maybe you don't struggle with being a people pleaser. Maybe you struggle with anger or frustration. That, that anger at a gospel level often means a, a frustration, a lack of trust in God's sovereign care for you. That you're mad that work isn't going the way you want it to or that your portfolio isn't exactly, you know, it, it's, it's not where it should be or whatever, you, you're dealing with anger. Maybe it's in your relationships. Your kids, right, just won't obey the way that you want them to. And it reveals an immaturity in us that we don't trust in who Jesus is and what he has done for us. That he is guiding us and caring for us. Maturity rests in the assurance of all that Christ has done for us. That he is dwelling in us. That he is making us more like Christ, often through suffering. And we can trust him. We don't have to be angry when things don't go our way because we can trust that Christ is at work in and through us, in and through our circumstances to bring about things for his glory and for our good. Lastly, those who are firm in the faith, who are growing towards maturity, they recognize that they are laboring as God works powerfully within them with his energy. I love how Paul says this. It's in verse 129. For this I toil, I labor, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Listen, what does it take for me not to be a people pleaser or for you not to be angry? Like if we just stood here and said, like, stop it or be better, how far are we gonna get? Nowhere, right? We're going to have two problems. You're going to be a people pleaser or angry, and you're going to be mad that I told you to stop it, right? 
But if we can stay, he stay here week after week, moment after moment, Christ is your righteousness. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And it, it is he who is at work in you powerfully by his spirit, with his energy as you labor. That's a hope that we can rest in. How are we ever going to change? How are we ever going to grow? It is because Jesus is faithful, because he is at work in us. He's going to use suffering to do that. We used to tell our college students at Virginia Tech, um, there, there was this sense from them often that um, Christian life ought to be easy. Like, I, I put my trust in Jesus, I'm doing the right things. Why is, why is stuff not breaking my way? Why is it hard? And we'd have to sit across the coffee table or in our living room and say, the Christian life often feels like death. That there is a sense in which the Christian life often feels like a million deaths. As you follow your Savior who died once and for all for you and for the world and who will set everything to rights. There is a day coming when we will not need to grow in maturity, but Christ will have fully finished his work in us. And we lean into that hope as Christ works in us with his power, with his energy, making us look more like Jesus. And we do it together. I can get a little anxious as we think about moving into the building. Um, yeah, we were talking at the men's retreat about um, like game nights. Um, and some of you are gamers and that's awesome. I love that, I'm not. Uh, and I'm actually not because there's this, they say that like sports don't reveal, don't build character, they reveal it. Have you heard that before? Games reveal a little more about me than I want you to know. Um, and th there's, th <laughs> there's a reality to that, that like <laughs> the building sort of does that for me corporately as a church, right? Like wh what is it going to expose in us? where we've been trusting in our own abilities, where we've been trusting in our own greatness, where we've been trusting in ourselves in some way, how is the building gonna sort of expose those things? And so coming into a new job, trying to meet everybody, trying to be a, a good pastor, trying to think about all of these changes that are coming, I just, I want you to pray for me and I'll pray for you that Christ would do this work, <laughs> this maturing work in us, that we would be able to stand firm and suffer together for the glory of Christ because he is at work in us. Let's pray. Lord God, you are kind in all that you do. Thanks for your mercy and grace that Christ who is sovereign, who is Lord of all, dwells in us by his spirit. That we have hope. Would you work the grace of maturity into us? Would you grow us as a body? 
Would you help us to love one another, to give up ourselves for the sake of those in this room, for those here in Fort Worth who are yet to know you? Father, make us a people who rest in your finished work, who know and trust all that you are for us. Help us to live that out in our bodies as we suffer for you. And Lord, would you use that picture, a suffering church, trusting in Jesus, to draw many to yourself. We pray in his name. Amen.